Red Hat started to take a better look at our ecosystem. The industry had changed, RHEL had changed. And one of the things that we'd noticed was that CentOS wasn't the thriving community that we had hoped it would be. And always working innovation upstream, which is where it matters. But these downstream rebuilds are different. Do take a look at the different offerings that Red Hat has, because some of them are now very low cost or free in ways that didn't exist just five years ago. From Orion X in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, everyone, and hi, Shaheen. Great to be with you again. Great to be with you, and here's another installment of what we have covered a couple of times now. Yes, indeed. This ongoing coverage discussion of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, RHEL, and change in policy from Red Hat. Today, we have with us Mike McGrath. He is Vice President, Core Platforms at Red Hat, where he leads the development of Red Hat Enterprise Linux and related platforms. Mike's been at Red Hat for nearly 17 years, and he's been in the IT industry since 2004. And Mike issued two blogs from Red Hat in late June, announcing the company's new policy regarding RHEL. Mike, welcome. And why don't we start by you giving us a sort of before and after picture regarding this new policy? What's it all about from Red Hat's perspective? Yeah, I, th I think to start with the, the actual change was just around how we publish source content. And I'll, I'll go back in time in a minute. But up until a couple of months ago, Red Hat did quite a lot of work in our CentOS stream space, which is where we build RHEL. And that's a relatively new development in the last couple of years. And we had published code, the, the downstream rebuild code, to git.centos.org. And what we have decided as part of this change is that we're no longer going to publish the downstream code to git.centos.org. All of the code that's required to build RHEL will continue to be published in the CentOS stream space. It's the same place that we build RHEL. But the simple point-and-click operation to rebuild RHEL from git.centos.org is gone. If somebody wants to rebuild RHEL or specific packages for RHEL, they have to go to CentOS stream. And that can be harder. And I think that that's one of the challenges here. If you permit me, I, maybe I, can I go back to the sort of the history that led up to this point too? Is yeah, that would be great. I think for some of the audience, the question is like, what happened? <laughs> yeah, so let's let's go way back to the beginning in the, the early aughts in 2000. Red Hat introduces Red Hat Enterprise Linux, uh, what we've been calling RHEL. It's a subscription model. And I think at the time, it probably ran some of the world's best print servers. And over time, it, uh, it became more popular. And someone in the CentOS, people in the community decided, well, they're going to do a rebuild of RHEL. The licenses allow that. They had access to it. And so they created uh, CentOS Linux, which is the idea was for it to be as close to RHEL as possible without charging anything for it. You, you know, just the community would come together and they would use it because some people wanted to use RHEL but couldn't afford to or for whatever I didn't want to pay for it. And that went fine for several years. There was a point in time there, I forget the exact years, but around 2010-ish, something like that, 2014-ish, the CentOS community was having problems. You know, it's expensive to run all of these servers and it takes a lot of work to you know, maintain a, a RHEL rebuild. And they were just having problems getting it going. And so Red Hat kind of stepped in and said, hey, well, we will take this community on and nurture it and go from there. And so for many years, Red Hat and CentOS, Red Hat officially sponsored CentOS there. You know, we paid for the servers, a lot of them, and, and helped produce this whole ecosystem. Then as we flash forward to uh, you know, a few years ago, 
Red Hat started to take a better look at our ecosystem. The industry had changed, RHEL had changed. And one of the things that we'd noticed was that CentOS wasn't the thriving community that we had hoped it would be. There were a few special interest groups and you know there were some people that were doing interesting things. I don't want to diminish the work that was being done. But if you were to look at the you know, the pie graph of it, the, you know, the Pac-Man graph, there were way, way more users of CentOS than there were community contributors. And at least from my experience in working in communities, I, I was actually a Fedora volunteer before working at Red Hat. I certainly did not recognize that to be very healthy. And we started rethinking what that would look like and came up with CentOS Stream. And CentOS Stream is a distribution that's not like any other distribution out there that I know of. It is downstream of Fedora. So for those that are, are familiar with Fedora, Red Hat actually creates a new RHEL release every three years and we fork it from Fedora. It is a formal fork. And so at some point in time, we decide it's time to build a new one. Fedora goes on its way and RHEL goes on its way. Well, in the CentOS stream space, CentOS is now just barely upstream of RHEL. It's basically where we do the RHEL development in the public. And so the only commits that go into the CentOS stream mainline branch are things that are intended for the next version of RHEL. In a lot of ways, now you could look at RHEL as sort of a bundled release of CentOS Stream. We've always built RHEL behind closed doors, and now it's in the public. And so RHEL and CentOS Stream are very, very tightly coupled. And then we had CentOS Linux, CentOS Stream, and RHEL. And it kind of got to the point where we also had free versions of RHEL available now, low-cost versions of RHEL are there. For anybody that's interested, you know, you can go and get a free version of RHEL, proper RHEL, for up to 16 servers for you know whatever use cases you need to. You can use that for your development. You can use it for production, whatever you want to. And uh, you know, just as an, that's just one example. And so as we flash forward in time, we decided, hey, you know, CentOS Linux, we have more ways to get free RHEL. We would rather them be using proper RHEL instead of this rebuild of, of it that we're calling CentOS. So let's sunset CentOS. This was a, a very controversial decision that one was. Hmm. Uh, and it makes sense. A lot of people have come to I think assume that you know Red Hat was okay with you using kind of a you know one way to look at it be using a knockoff of RHEL without paying for RHEL. I think that at one point in time that was true, but as we got more into today's world, that became less true. And so we said oh, we're going to sunset CentOS Linux. We still have CentOS Stream that's there. We're going to double down on making sure that proper RHEL is more available than ever. We have more free offerings than ever. You've got a UBI is another one for base containers if free of charge and fully redistributable. Flash forward to this year, it's been a very difficult year in the in the industry. We recently had some layoffs, among other things. We started talking is why are we still publishing code to git.centos.org? You know, what what value is that having for Red Hat? And nobody could answer it. We have CentOS Stream now. And so we made another announcement that says, hey, if you want RHEL source code, if you're a customer, you can get it the same way you always have your portal and everything else. You know, you've got to agree to our terms to do that, but it's all there. Or you can go to CentOS Stream where all the code still is. And you know, we knew this would be controversial with especially rebuilders because it, it does make their jobs more complicated. But the code's still there, and that's uh, that's kind of where we landed on it. All right. So Mike, when open source started way back when, mm -hmm. the idea was that I'm a volunteer, I want to contribute. I'm not in it really for the for the money. I'm just like contributing and it's fun. And if anybody wants it, they can join the community either as a user, et cetera, et cetera. So open source had a very strong connotation that it was free open source, the whole FOSS thing. Mm -hmm. Then I think Red Hat was one of the best 
examples or arguably the first example of being able to make a business out of it. And I remember back then, the argument went something like the following, that open source is free for those who would not have bought anyway. And for those who would have bought, the fact that all these other people are using it is a compelling reason. So it makes sense as a business model because you're not losing any revenue, very little anyway, that people who are going to buy are going to buy, but then they want service, they want support, they want to throw to choke, all of that. Has that changed? Are we observing sort of the end of open source as we used to see it? No more sort of volunteers contributing. Now everybody is on a payroll and you have to actually fund this stuff and the business model has fundamentally shifted. Is that something that is causing all these changes? I think there's some aspects of that. I think there's still plenty of places for volunteers to show up. And certainly Red Hat already sponsors several communities, but in my space, Fedora is one I mentioned and CentOS Stream is another one Mm -hmm. where people can come and contribute volunteers or still in school or wherever. You know, we will happily take a look at your contributions. You can come work with us in those spaces. I think one of the things that has changed is there are several aspects of, especially some of these fundamental infrastructure pieces that are in distributions, Linux distributions, that are very, very heavily tilted towards companies taking care of them. There was recently a, a survey I saw on LinkedIn from Mark Cox that showed where open SSL contributions come from. And it is mm-hmm. overwhelmingly companies that are maintaining open SSL. And that's because it would be very hard to find somebody to just work on it in their free time. Or, you know, someone that talented, you know, they also have to, it's, it takes a lot of work and they, we all have to eat. And so I think a lot of these core infrastructural pieces are being done by companies. And that's certainly very true anytime you're doing hardware enablement. Both We partner very closely with vendors like Intel and AMD and else to make sure that their code is working and continues to work upstream. That's valuable for everybody. But I do think that this notion that communities are somehow just a ragtag group of volunteers doing this stuff in their spare time, I think that there's less and less of that because open source has proven to be very valuable and it's it's worth it for professionals to be working with open source and you know this it's the best place for companies to come together on things right i sort of see it as instead of just individual volunteers, you now have sort of corporate volunteers. Is that a decent way of saying it? It is. But I I also think that we've created some, you know, there are still volunteer rock stars out there that that will get paid to work on this no matter where they work. And in, in a lot of ways, that's very empowering for the contributors. I was never that level of rock star, but I have many of them on my team. And I think that that's an, an important part here as well. I think and you're if, absolutely right. Yeah. And if you wouldn't mind, I would, I'd like to go back and talk about this whole openness concept, because I think that this is kind of core to the discussion. There's free as in freedom, and then there's also free as in beer. And for the any listeners that aren't familiar with that, free as in freedom means that when you get the code, you can do whatever you want to with it. That's the free as in freedom argument. And the free as in beer argument is you didn't have to pay any money for it. Maybe you sat next to somebody at the bar and they gave you a beer that's a free beer. You can't necessarily do whatever you want to with the beer, and you don't even necessarily know what ingredients went into that beer, but it was free as in charge. And I think that this is part of the core conversation that our industry should be having at this particular moment. And here's why. Since the very beginning, the Free Software Foundation has stated that the work that developers are doing, volunteer or not, is valuable, and they should be getting paid, and they should be getting paid well. Hmm. And that implies at least some sort of business model behind open source. And Red Hat has certainly, by any measure, been one of the most successful at this, if not the most successful at this, at finding a way to balance the needs of business 
and making sure that we can continue to pay our people, provide great support for our customers, but also give back to the open source community. And to do that, we've set up three different things at this point. We have two communities that I mentioned earlier. Both of them are community projects that are largely run by the community. CentOS Stream is a little bit different in that we don't let something into the mainline branch unless it is going to be in the next version of RHEL. But the SIGs are much more like a regular community where people can come together and do all kinds of weird and interesting things that you know maybe Red Hat doesn't even care about or does and is just too invasive of a change for proper RHEL. All a great place to go do and experiment with. But we also have Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which is a product. It is not a community project. And I think with our recent announcement, there were a lot of things going on that I think people didn't quite realize. The first one is, you know, RHEL as a product is something that Red Hat commercially makes money off of. It is not, you know, like I said, a community project. And something we haven't talked about yet is the rebuilders. And CentOS Linux was a rebuilder back in the day, and we've kind of made some changes to that. When we made those changes, we had correctly assumed that other rebuilders would pop up. And while I don't think I can speak for everybody at Red Hat, I'm certainly fine with that. A community rebuild of open source software is just something that I accept is always going to exist. I think what I did not anticipate was that all of the major rebuilders have a major commercial entity behind them who is also trying to make money off of that rebuild. Hmm. And so this gets things very muddy, where now we have several different companies, including Red Hat, that have a community arm that where things should be free is in freedom. But then we also have a commercial aspect of that, which Red Hat has always had a problem with, but I don't think that we correctly were able to articulate it until my blog post, the, the second blog post, where we basically lay the claim that in a normal open source ecosystem, you know, you have upstream, which, you know, that might be kernel.org, could be all the various utilities that come about that make up a Linux distribution. And as you move downstream, that goes into a product. But in no other cases that I'm aware of is something attempting to be downstream of an open source product that is also trying to be identical to that product while also trying to claim to be a community. And this gets very messy because in normal times in open source, if somebody was very upset with my blog post, they would fork at that point. They'd say, well, we're going to fork the code. We'll take the code that we've got now and we will maintain it. But with the exception of Alma, the rest of them said, nope, we're still going to keep doing the same thing we've been doing. We're going to try to be bug for bug compatible with RHEL. And in those situations, especially with the commercial incentives that they have now, that does not act like a fork. A fork is an act of innovation. Instead, that acts more like a siphon. They're just trying to siphon our customers off at a cheaper, cheaper rate. And I think that that's bad for everybody. It would be much better to be on a level playing field like we compete with, for example, Canonical. We don't have a problem with what Canonical is doing. I think most of the time uh, we think that we're better than, we have a better offering than Canonical does. And I think a lot of times they do too, but that's what competition is, that we drive and push each other. And traditionally, SUSE and Red Hat had that same relationship. You know, We're trying to compete for customers, always working together upstream, which is the part that matters, and always working innovation upstream, which is where it matters. But these downstream rebuilds are different. And we have a problem with it, especially with the commercial incentives. And so, you know, Red Hat, a big part of this was Red Hat defending its commercial business. Mike, who are some of the other rebuilders you mentioned, SUSE? Who are some of the others? Some other famous ones are, you know, Oracle and Rocky Linux. Uh, I know you guys did a, another interview with Greg at some point. You know, several others that are smaller. There's some that are downstream of us that are new. And so, for example, uh, Amazon Linux is one that forks from Fedora. 
and create something new. And we're fine with that. I think that that's great. And going back to Alma, Alma has stated that they're no longer going to attempt to be bug for bug compatible. They're not going to be trying to grab sources from our product downstream. Instead, they're going to work with us in the community space in CentOS Stream. And that's great. That's what CentOS Stream is for. If everybody was pulling from CentOS Stream and, and having their own mission, that sounds like a very thriving enterprise Linux ecosystem to me. But unfortunately, others have chosen a different path. And so we're some of this is going to play out and we'll see how it goes. So let me check this as a piece of the complexity that I think I'm detecting is that I think you're, please verify what I'm saying is correct. I think you're enforcing a linear software supply chain. You're saying that there's a pool of open source modules that everybody's free to go grab from and then go build a product out of. That product doesn't get to go right back into that pool. And I think in the past it did. Is that true? Well, not quite, because at no point in time did, for example, if we look at CentOS, with CentOS, there was no way for it to drive things back into the pool. They had no way to open bugs or fix things. Their goal in life was to be bug for bug compatible. And so even in some of these new cases, they're not driving innovation into the upstream. Maybe they have individuals in their community that are, but they as a community, if their mission is to be identical to RHEL, then by definition, they don't need to innovate because Red Hat already did it. And so they're not driving things back into anywhere. They're simply pulling downstream and using and now, unfortunately, trying to make a profit off of that. Yeah, what I mean is that if you create RHEL and it's now your product, mm-hmm. I think the perception in a big chunk of the industry is that that itself is an open source module that can be used in any way I want to use it because it's open source. And therefore, it's sort of like it's still back into that menu of software modules I could grab from. And you're saying, no, the moment I declare it a product, it is now a product. It doesn't go right back into the menu of items you could pick from. Is that what's happening? This is what I would say that I think a lot of people and even new companies grapple with. And anybody out there who's thinking about creating an open source company or thinking about taking your code public, I would make the following recommendation. Your, the project and community side of your ecosystem should be kept separate from the product. Mm. Now, that's not to say in your case, you know, now the product is somehow special or, or hands off or whatever. I'm not saying that the, the licenses of this open source software allows anybody to create the licenses that we have, allows anybody to create rebuilds. But if you are going to attempt to be the same and not, you know, not be identical or even just like here, I, it's just like RHEL, but uh, we also added Raspberry Pi or something like that. Mm. It is not sufficiently differentiated. You should probably expect that company that is investing it to react commercially also within their licensing rights. The flip side of that is on the community side. If all of these downstream workers were behaving like Amazon is, trying to create something new you know, with Amazon Linux, if they're doing it in the community space, that's a space where we both benefit and all of our users benefit because they're driving fixes back into Fedora. We get those fixes downstream and route. It's a, it's a really great like feeding on itself ecosystem. Whereas if your sole mission in life is to just be downstream, I'm not saying you can't do that. That's certainly allowed by many of the licenses that are out there. What I am saying is you should expect that business to respond and protect their commercial mm-hmm. business. Okay. So Mike, we've seen the news from CIQ, SUSE, and Oracle regarding the creation of the enterprise, Open Enterprise Linux Association, Open ELA, 
Will Red Hat respond to that, or how do you anticipate interacting with that association? I I don't think we have any plans to interact with them. They were doing rebuilds before this announcement. Our code is still public, despite what a lot of the media is saying. They still seem to be doing just fine doing rebuilds after. I'm sure it took them a few hours to figure out what to do about the announcement, or you know, maybe a couple of days. But as far as I know, they didn't really miss too much. And I don't know where they're getting their code from now. You can ask them that. But as far as OpenELA, you know, we're obviously keeping an eye on it. We'd like to know more about what they plan on doing. But I, we haven't seen anything that warrants a response. And we haven't seen anything that really changes the game at all. They're still trying to produce bug for bug rebuilds. And maybe they felt they needed to join forces to do that. I don't know. So the other thing about open source, Mike, has been the freemium model where the base is free and open and, and accessible. And then you build on top of that. And again, Red Hat led the open source community by adding more and more to what at what point was just OS. And then it was like JBoss and then Redshift and this, that, and the other. And at this point, it's a pretty tall stack of software, right? Does this impact everything above it? Or is everything above it equally tied to the actual operating system? There's a notion in the industry that the OS just doesn't matter as much as it used to, but maybe it does. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I contend that, especially in the container world, the operating system matters more than ever. Hmm. And I think that's because as you go and look at what is in those containers, the number of old containers sitting around with who knows what security vulnerabilities in them is just going to massively go up over time. So like how you build those containers matters quite a bit. Now, in terms of up and down the stack, one thing that I think people made a lot of hay out of was that somehow Red Hat was keeping code private or not contributing back to those communities. Red Hat actually has an upstream first policy. And I touched on this earlier, hmm. but we believe that in terms of innovation and where the code should live, doing it upstream is where it matters. And sure, sometimes that means it takes a very long time for us to fix something while we get it in the upstream. But that's the thing that matters. And sure, you know, SUSE will grab it and, and Canonical will grab it and you know any any community or product, people will get it from there. But that's what it's about. Like most companies do it that way. And so in terms of up and down the stack, Red Hat believes that the innovation, like the work that we pay our people to do should go up the stack first. And then, you know, for us, we make money from maintaining it for a very long time because a lot of those upstreams, they don't want to maintain their code for five, 10, sometimes even 13 years. Right. So, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. It does. Excellent. So Mike, the other question, which is obligatory in the times we live in is AI. So AI is now promising to write the code for you. It even makes it look like it's maintainable, even if you expect it to maintain it. How's that impacting how you develop software? How's that impacting the notion of a community where some of the members of the community could be AI bots? Yeah, th this is a great question. I should mention my wife is an actress. And so <laughs> we've also been very closely watching the writers and actors strike, which also yes. has a very strong AI component. We talk yes. about this quite a lot. At Red Hat, certainly Red Hat is currently owned by IBM. And so for those that are confused by that, I still have my redhat.com email address. And the IBM uh, discount does not work at my gym. Technically, uh, IBM owns Red Hat, and they have a, you know they have Watson and a whole AI portfolio. And we've been keeping track of all of this very closely. I'll share one just one little anecdote. I had a fairly senior engineer who just kind of was checking out ChatGPT and said, "Hey, what what does this actually look like?" And so it just went through the motions as kind of a curiosity for it to review a kernel patch. He gave it very little information. 
And it knew immediately that this was kernel code. It knew exactly where it was supposed to go. And he asked it to make some suggestions. And some of those suggestions were absolute garbage, but some of them were not. And the AI had better variable names than what, you know, what the engineer came up with. That time. <laughs> That's and awesome. It was, yeah. It, and it was even able to refactor some of the, the code. You know, this one, one of the functions was too long and it refactored that code a bit. And so, I, you know, we're not in a space where we're trying to drive code to be written by AI or anything. And, but we are, I think some of our engineers, not as a Red Hat policy or anything, but some of our engineers have started to try to figure out if there's a way to have AI as an assistant for things. And I think that that's true of a lot of places. Maybe we'll end up in a space sometime in the future where AI is generating code that we trust. But uh, at the moment, uh, we're just kind of looking at it and keeping on it, both because our customers want this and because it could make our developers' lives better, but also because even outside of code generation, a lot of our customers want to run AI workloads on Linux, either in containers or outside of containers. And so we've, you know, we've been trying to figure out how to make make it possible for them to do that. And sometimes it's as simple as enabling a new chipset of some kind. Mm. And sometimes it's more complicated, like trying to make sure that RHEL or Fedora or CentOS Stream can satisfy the dependencies of whatever framework they're using. So that's kind of where we are with AI. Brilliant. Okay, so Mike, we've covered a lot of ground here. I just want to close with kind of a very open-ended question. Are there any perceptions or misconceptions out there regarding this whole issue that you would like to address? Yeah, I think that there's there's kind of two things. One of them is just that, you know, I know that the original CentOS Linux sunset decision, that was a very highly controversial decision, which makes just a ton of sense to me. And I, I understand that. I think Red Hat probably did a poor job of communicating our stance on downstream rebuilds just in general. I think a lot of people thought that, especially because of CentOS Linux, that we formally endorsed that, that we somehow put the Red Hat promise behind those community projects. Whereas, like I said, community projects and products are very different. If you want Red Hat's you know, guarantee on something, we have a product that you can buy to get that guarantee. And I think that that was, that, that was I think, is, is going to continue to be a, a challenging transition for people to understand. Even now, I see people that say, well, where am I supposed to get my free rel now? And you know, our answer would be, well, you can come get rel for up to 16 instances. But beyond that, unless one of the other free or low-cost offerings works for you, if you do want something free, there's several dozen free Linux distributions out there for you, of which we also produce Fedora and CentOS Stream. You can go use one of those. The other misconception that we had was about Red Hat's commitment to open source. There was a lot of initial angst, especially from relatively new influencers or you know people that haven't been in the industry for a really long time, and even some that have been, that have forgotten how the GPL behaves. Only about a third, I think, of Red Hat's code is actually GPL. There's quite a bit of code we don't have to release at all because of the license, but we still do it because that's part of our values. And because of some of these concerns, there are all kinds of videos and, and news articles and everything else about Red Hat going closed source or private. And that is not at all true. The announcement that we made was purely about, we're just, it doesn't make sense for us to go out of our way to debrand the source and publish it on get.sentos.org to help people who are commercially competing with us. That just didn't make sense. Mm. And so the code is all out there still. We don't want private code. If you happen to find code in RHEL that's private, that's not upstream somewhere else, feel free to email me directly and let me know. We have policies against that. We'll make sure it gets upstream. Certainly in the CentOS stream space, if, if nothing else, sometimes upstreams don't want our old code. You know, they, they've moved on 10 years ago from that particular branch and we still got to maintain it. 
But yeah, open source, Red Hat is still completely on board. We are as open as ever, and all of the code is still in CentOS Stream. And I think the fact that many of the rebuilders are still around are kind of a testament to that. And I think that I would invite all of them to start working from and in the CentOS Stream space as opposed to our downstream code space if they'd like to do that. So it's been mentioned that part of the reason we are where we are is because the combination of all these other variations of buck-for-buck compatible versions have actually helped it become as popular and as standard as it is. And that with this policy, that's going to fragment it again. And maybe it will even have negative impacts on rail itself. Obviously, your analysis didn't indicate that. But do you see that as a factor? This is one of those things that history will tell. We'll see. But I will say the way that I look at this is in terms of pros and cons. And at some point in time in the last five years, the cons of having a downstream rebuild outweigh the pros. And Mm -hmm. I've had lots of People in the community who are very vocal about this and very angry say, I can't believe Red Hat is shooting themselves in the foot with this. Right. Uh, you know, all of this has been just a, this free Linux has been a great free to paid model that is just churning out sales leads and, and rel experts. And sure, that's, that's in the pros column. In the cons column are, quite frankly, very large customers that depend very heavily on Red Hat but instead choose to use either a free rebuild or in some cases paying one of the downstream rebuilds for support. And Red Hat, I don't think, is under an obligation to participate in that. We don't have to put our guarantee on it. We don't have to go out of our way to help help our competition right. compete with us. And I think that uh, that's where we are. And, I, and just to go back to, remember, the industry has changed. There's still plenty of ways to get free and low-cost rel. Another one I'll pitch is called Rosie. For any any open source workloads, I think of any size at all. If you're working on open source, do, you know, doing some sort of open source community, you can get free rel, free proper rel as well. That goes well beyond the 16 server limit. And so, you know, do you know maybe you're in education or in HPC or somewhere else? Do take a look at the different offerings that Red Hat has because some of them are now very low cost or free in ways that didn't exist just five years ago. I see. You alluded to this one, but let's just make that also explicit. And that's the role that IBM may or may not have played in how this panned out. And there have been stories that, well, guess what? You know, Red Hat got bought by IBM and slowly but surely this has happened. Now, from the outside, my observation has been that IBM has been extraordinarily hands-off. And you mentioned that, that, you know, your email addresses. So I did not really get the sense that this really had anything to do with IBM, but I think it'd be good to confirm it. Yeah. At no point in time has somebody from IBM come and talked to me about this decision before. No army of lawyers descended upon you. No. And I'll say, I, I will say... It does. This comes up a lot, and it does amuse me to think that that there are others that think that <laughs> IBM execs are sitting around in meetings talking about CentOS or, or rebuilders. <laughs> I just don't think it's on their radar. I really don't. Yeah, I thought so too, and I'm glad to hear that. Well, Mike, thanks so much for coming on with us and delving into this whole issue. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate being able to get the word out a little bit better. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC podcast is a production of OrionX in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening. <laughs>